Thank you for joining us for today's Insight Studios podcast. Our subject today is the birth narrative of Jesus Christ, part one. Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 25. Our presenter is Pastor Kimberly Orr. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So just the end of Matthew 1 today. Would someone feel led to open us in prayer? Uh, yes, I can do it. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Father. We thank you for, for you and your son, Father. Lord, we love you so, so dearly, Lord. We just thank you for just looking into our hearts, Father God, and just loving us in spite of ourselves, Father God. Right now, we just thank you for our daily bread, Father. We thank you for this class, and we thank you for Pastor Kim and all the families that are gathered here, Father. Right now, Lord, look down on this world, Father God, and we want you to help us change it, Father God. Yes, Lord. Lord, we want your will to be done in our lives, not our own will, Father God. Right now, Father God, just lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, Father God. You are the great I am, Father God. There is no one like you, Lord. When you spoke, you created whatever you please, Father God. Right now, we love you, Lord, and we commit this day in this class. But it will go, God and Son, Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. 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 So as a reminder, the notes from all classes are in a Dropbox folder. The link is on the top of your notes. Um, you can go to that link tiny.cc Matthew Notes. You can type that in and you you can have access to all of the past notes at any time. Feel free to share those with other people. Also share the podcast. Uh, I've been getting those up every Tuesday uh, and you can listen to it again or share it with somebody else. Uh, And uh, that way you can always keep up with the class no matter where you are. Uh, again, just to remind you, this is an open class. So people can come in and out whenever they want to. They'll get something. The Lord will give them something no matter what. So if, if you come and then you skip five weeks and you come back, you're still good. All right? Um, but do encourage other people that this is not uh, a class that's closed. It's open. All right? So this morning, again, we're in 18 through 25, chapter 1. So let's read that. I'll read the first verse, and then if somebody would read 19, somebody read 20, and so forth till we're done with the chapter. It's real short. But I'll read verse 18. It doesn't matter what version. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill the Lord, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. And knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. All right, and that's all we're going to deal with today. 
So the first question on your notes is, how does the genealogy and what we've learned so far uh, lead into this birth narrative, the beginning of the birth narrative? How do these things link together? That's what the line of Joseph, Joseph was his legal father. So it leads right into Joseph. So, so we see that the genealogy ends with Joseph and then Jesus right above it, right? Verse 17, verse 16 actually. And then we go right into the birth narrative. So, so there's, a, there's a logical bridge. What about theologically? How does what we've learned about all of the things that God was doing and who Jesus is in the genealogy lead into this, this story of the birth? Yes, ma'am. It was from the promise of Abraham. Good. I think the promises to Abraham in the genealogy just took the course through. And so when you read the genealogy, it fixed all of the stories in between those years before Jesus' birth and how it comes to pass with his birth. Very good. So all of the stories and promises that are inherent, if you will, in all of the genealogies and all of the, the, the people starting with Abraham because it says that through your seed, through your descendant, singular, all people will be blessed, right? So it does. Theologically, then this leads right into this birth narrative. It is common um, in Greek and Roman literature of the day to also uh, begin with heroic stories, right? We talked about the heroic nature of the book of Matthew, that it's telling the story of a hero known as Jesus. And all heroic stories start with a miraculous birth narrative. Again, think back to Roman and Greek mythology. Hercules <laughs> has a miraculous birth, right? Uh, many of the other gods and goddesses that were talked about had all these miraculous births. So Matthew is writing in a day and time where if you're going to talk about somebody important, they need to have a miraculous birth narrative, <laughs> right? And so we know that Jesus actually has one and that it was predicted many hundreds of years before in the prophet Isaiah. Now we'll get there in a minute. So not only does Jesus have a heroic uh, background, he's royal, he has a heroic and miraculous birth. So that's where we're getting, those are several of the bridges there. Anything else anyone can think of as a bridge between the genealogy and the beginning of the birth narrative? Any other things that you see? Well, it seems like they wanted to keep the chronological so there is some attention to chronology at this point. Good. Okay, excellent. So the bulk of what we're going to do today is talk about the nature of engagements and marriage in the ancient world. <laughs> because that informs how we understand the actions of Joseph and Mary in this story. So... In the ancient world, the ancient Near Eastern world where Israel sits and surrounding areas, marriage was not like it is today, generally speaking. There's some similarity. But there was no big wedding ceremony like we have today. Didn't happen, right? Marriages were all arranged. There was no, generally no great emotional overlay. We have romanticized romance. 
right? <laughs> Almost to the extreme. <laughs> and, but in the ancient world, families would inquire of other families, hey, usually, for instance, in Nazareth, this was a small community, probably consisted of no more than 100, 150 people, probably all related in some way, distantly related, closely related. But think about a big family reunion and that y'all all live together in the same town. That's pretty much what you're dealing with here, about 150 folks. <laughs> so they knew each other. Joseph and Mary would have known each other, probably grew up together. But like now in some of the Middle Eastern countries, no woman would leave the house unattended, especially if they were not married. Ain't gonna happen. Girls were not allowed to just roam freely. So they weren't allowed to just kind of go out and do whatever. <laughs> they were always attended by a male escort or by their mama or somebody, all right? Marriageable age in the ancient world was between the ages of 12 and 16. If you got past 16, you were considered an old maid. Right. Between the ages of 12 and 16 was marriageable age. For men, around age 19 up to age about 25, that was marriageable age. Um, and the families arranged the marriages, but with the man and woman's consent. Okay? The families got together. They said, my daughter Mary is marriageable. You've got a great young man. We're both from the royal line, so we need to keep it all in the family. They're distant cousins, probably, in some way. Uh, and let's see how we can work out a deal so that we can get these young people married, because that'll work. right? So the way this went was the groom's family paid a price called the bride price to the bride's family. Essentially, the groom purchased the bride. And so there was an amount of money that was agreed upon and set mutually, and then the groom's family would then pay the bride's family for the girl. Additionally, the bride had a dowry. She would either have some set of money or the equivalent of money. Some sort of, you know, inherited pieces like we would think like what's in the cedar chest. You know, uh, uh, dishes and silver and things like that. But this would be usually an amount of money plus probably cooking utensils and other uh, household items that would have been given to the daughter as a dowry. And she would bring that into the marriage. And she retained property rights over that dowry in the marriage. There was a contract that is still in use today. Yes? Don't give my wife any ideas. <laughs> now, you're really going to get mad at me in about two seconds because I'm going to tell you what this contract was. So once there was a mutual agreement between the two families and the man and the woman agreed that, okay, we'll give this a try. Now, before their wedding day, they would not have been allowed to meet each other privately. Again, they may have known each other socially. They would have been allowed to talk to each other in a social setting, but being alone with each other ain't happening. Okay? 
virginity was assumed. No messing around. <laughs> so then there was a contract drawn up, and it's called a ketuba. Ketuba. K E T U B A H. K E T U B A H. Ketuba. And it's a contract between a wife and a husband at the point of the betrothal, which is what we're talking about here at the beginning of the text. When the families made an agreement and the bride price was paid, then there was a ketubah drawn up that ensured that the wife, wife's rights were protected. This was unbelievable in the ancient world. There was no other contract like this in the ancient world. What it basically said was, I agree to take you as my wife. I agree to take you as my husband. The property I bring into this marriage remains my property. If this marriage dissolves, I can take my property out wholesale. It sounds like a prenup. No. It is a prenup. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much this was an ancient prenup. We know during the time of Jesus that the Ketuba language, as it is today, with some minor alterations, was set. So if you were to go read online a Ketuba, it shows you all the parts, you can say the core of this language goes all the way back to the time of Jesus. So a betrothal in the ancient world was viewed as a marriage without the sexual component. The wedding was simply the family saying, okay, now it's time, because between the betrothal and the wedding was one year, which gave the groom and his family time to prepare for the bride's arrival into the groom's household, which would have been the father's house, by the way. Yeah. All right? They didn't have... Okay, there are still families and cultures that they all live together in the same house, yeah. all right? Yeah. So, uh, for instance, I, I, know, I know there's a family um, not too far away from a friend of mine's house who uh, the grandmother uh, uh, and uh, the mom and dad and two sets of children and grandkids live, and they just keep adding on to the house, okay? Everybody has their own space, mm -hmm. but... And grandma says, abuela says, you know, this is my part of the house. You know, like they have no more of it. This is it. But they keep adding on to the house. This is an economically smart thing. Yeah, it is. Okay? <laughs> um, in the ancient world, very same thing. So when uh, Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. He does not say mansions, by the way. It's his rooms. In my father's house are many rooms. That's what he's talking about. You're going to come and live in the father's house. We've got a room for you. That's basically what he's saying. Um, so again, a marriage was the time when the bride was brought to the groom's house. There was a, a public acknowledgement of this man and this woman are going to live together uh, in marriage. And the ketubah was then signed at that point. Okay. Now, in the ancient world, a lot of people couldn't read and write. So they would just be in agreement, a public agreement. No signature. Nowadays, it's signed at the wedding ceremony, a Jewish wedding ceremony, or immediately after. So there wasn't some big hoop hop. 
okay? Bride comes in, brings all her bridesmaids. They have a big party. Bride and groom go away, consummate the marriage. A lot of times there'd be a presentation of the bed sheet. <laughs> She's a virgin. <laughs> oh, look, this was normal. They didn't think anything of it, okay? And everybody would go, yeah! That's a big party. And the wedding feast lasted seven days. Wow. They was partying for seven days. Okay? And that was a ancient Jewish wedding. Ancient, ancient. Ancient deal. Uh, I grew up, again, in East Texas. Um, we had a number of Czechoslovakian immigrants. If anybody ever went to a Czech wedding, it was seven days. You would have the wedding ceremony maybe on a Sunday after church. And then they would partay for about seven days after a whole week. Yes, sir. I guess that's what gave rise to Jesus. First miracle to turn the water to wine when they ran out. They ran out. Bless the Lord. Can't run out. Can't run out. That's a totally rude, right? So, yes. Did you have a question? No. Okay. So, um, that, that was meant. So, betrothal again was legally viewed as marriage. And once that contract was agreed upon, by the families and the man and the woman. That's why Joseph thought about divorcing Mary. If you're betrothed, if you're engaged, you had to divorce. If Joseph would have died before the wedding, Mary would have been considered a widow, even though she was not legally yet married. But there was a legal status for the betrothal. Okay, so it's a very different kind of thing than we have today. So then the first question, the second question we have then is, you know, how is engagement similar to today and how is it different? So are there, are there, are there some things that are somewhat similar? What's similar? Prenups. Prenups. Okay, good. <laughs> That's the lawyer talking there. That's right. So prenup, yes. There's an engagement period. There's an engagement. There's an engagement period. Good, right? Excellent. I mean, some cultures still do arrange marriage. Absolutely. There are many cultures that still do arrange marriage. In fact, I have, to have a friend who's Pakistani, and their families arrange the marriage. She said, oh, I loved it. I totally, I didn't have to go out there and figure all this out. I trusted my mom and dad that they knew enough young men um, that they knew who would, who would kind of fit with me personality-wise. And there's always the option not to marry them. That's, that's the great thing, right? In, in most arranged marriages around the world, especially in the Middle Eastern weddings especially, you know, there isn't a mutual agreement between the man and the woman. They're not forced. Now, if they're forced, that's not within the, the laws that are originally set out, okay, in Judaism or in Islam for that matter. So arranged marriages are still very much alive and well, you know. Sometimes I think it might be better for our young folks. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they also still do dowries, too. Dowries, yes. One of my friends had one, and he showed me, he went through the process with me. I was looking, I was like, you know, you got to book the women, look at their picture, Indian, Indian guy. Mm -hmm. And he would see the ones he liked, and he would tell his parents, okay, I like these five. Right. And they don't settle for me. Right. I'm looking, I'm like, 
<laughs> you got a book and right. you got the qualifications. I'm looking up like <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but if you're dating is different. Yeah. Dating is very different, and, and that's a very modern concept. Quote unquote, dating didn't really come into vogue until the mid 19th century. And it was usually done even then under supervision. Yeah. Yes? If I remember, I was West with my professor, he was in here. Mm -hmm. The way he was very rare. His uh, parents were bringing his wife over, and he was not Right. Yes, ma'am. But when the marriage is arranged, the parents are looking at more than love. That's the right. The ability of the husband to support the wife. Correct. What other uh, abilities he has that are compatible with the wife. So now, I may not have seen that when I was young, but I right. do see and understand it more so now. Yeah, uh, because again, uh, one of the reasons for the bride price was twofold. A, if you can't come up with the bride price, you can't economically provide. It was a sort of down payment on the economic future of, of the family. And so on the converse, if the marriage dissolved and there was a divorce, not only did the woman get to keep her dowry, but the bride's family had to pay the groom back the bride price that he paid. Yeah. <laughs> right. Look, y'all work it out. Right? <laughs> yes, ma'am. I see the element of removing all fleshly things yes. from the marriage. <laughs> right. It's strictly a business deal. It was a business transaction, yes. For the perpetuation of the family and for the good of the family, both for future children and economics sustainability within the family. Now, you know, again, I am quite sure that people learn to love each other emotionally as you go along. But remember, marriage was primarily not for fulfillment. Right. Okay? Matter of fact, I think it's wrong to expect that your husband or wife is your be-all and end-all. That's right. Okay? They are your most intimate partner, absolutely. You know, they're, they're there for comfort and nurture and, and sexual relationship and children and all that and economic provision. But, you know, your husband, women can't be everything. Have some good girlfriends, you know? They're never gonna be what your girlfriends can give you, you know? They're not gonna, they're gonna let you cry on their shoulder. All that, you know, there's a point, right, men, yeah. where, okay, we done. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll let you try. <laughs> Look. <laughs> Look, I didn't let you cry once. Right now, I gotta go watch some football. I'm gonna go out in the garage. But you need to cry again. Your buddy. All right. 
You gotta have some guy friends to go, you know, do man cave stuff. Right? That's important. The wife is not gonna be your man cave partner, right? All that, that scratching and spitting and stuff. No, y'all go right ahead. Y'all go ahead. So, you are. Absolutely, absolutely. That's right. That's right. But at least in the ancient world, a lot of the rites were set out ahead of time. You had a little bit of intro to know what to expect in a marriage. I mean, it lines out in a ketubah what the wife's duties are to the man and what the man's duties are to the wife. So where do we go wrong? <laughs> we got this. Look, okay, I'll tell you exactly. When, when emotion began to drive the car rather than practicality. When romance became romanticized, when romance became the driver, it's important to have romance in a marriage, absolutely, but that should not be the be, the be all and end all, because that ebbs and flows with how you feel that day, right? I can't stand to look at you today, but I love you. <laughs> love is a fact and a verb rather than how I feel all the time. <laughs> right? Because if you've been married more than five or six years, you're at a new level. You're at a new level. And you have to grow in love and nurture to one another. And that love deepens into different expressions along the way as you both mature, right? So to go back to the text here, Joseph was likely older than Mary, not terribly much older, but again, a little older, so therefore expected to be more mature and to care for Mary because she was essentially still a young woman, a teenager, okay? So Joseph is a good man. He wants to divorce her quietly. Now, you can imagine, again, they live in a town of 150 people or so. Can you imagine the wagging tongues? Yeah. <laughs> when Mary starts showing at about month four or five? Yeah. Who'd she sleep with? Because yeah. I know Joseph hadn't been over there. <laughs> or did they sneak out somewhere? And all of that, either scenario would have been viewed as highly shameful for both families. They would have been really shunned by the community. You know, invited to any dinner parties, uh, not talked to on the street. Think of the woman at the well and how she was treated. This would have been how both families would have been treated because of the impropriety of either or both parties. Joseph had every right to divorce Mary. You know, they weren't married yet. Again, the betrothal meant it was a legal agreement. And usually what happened was be that they would go to court. There was a, the legal court or the religious court. And Joseph would have to declare why Mary would be divorced. Adultery in this case. <laughs> and they had a leather shoe. Now, you're going to find this funny. They had a leather shoe that they ceremoniously threw at the woman. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Get 
here. It was a visual representation of get out, essentially. And then the ketubah was enforced, money was exchanged, and then the woman would have to go back home to mom and daddy in a divorce. Yes? As a divorced woman, are you allowed to remarry? No, not until that ex-husband dies. She would have no visible means of support other than her dowry and if her parents were still living. Um, the modern interpretation of that is that Jesus is able to forgive the sin of divorce and that then with counsel and with right thought you can remarry okay and that under grace you can remarry um, Jesus was clarifying the divorce laws because again mostly for women's rights that passage has to do with helping women not be viewed in a shameful position in community um, all throughout scripture the New Testament Jesus is very interested in protecting women which again very unusual in the ancient world. Your wife was the mother of your children. Period, end of story. And for many, for many. Yes, somebody had a question? Yes. We touched on the relationship between a man and a woman would have changed. Right. Getting into emotion. This all happened with the invention of movies and television. Before then. Before then. Before the invention of movies and televisions, um, romantic novels really is what got it started in the mid-1800s. It's where you really see this uptick in um, the uh, Jane Austen kind of novel where... <gasps> Hi, Jane Eyre, and we see the man, and he's handsome, and you look. And it's not that that didn't happen in the ancient world, it just wasn't the driver. Okay? People were attracted to each other. Other people weren't attracted to each other, but the people didn't get to decide who got married. The parents did. The families got together and said, is this, is this good for all of us? Is this good for them? You know? It wasn't man and the woman got together and went, oh, we're in love, and we're going to get married. It didn't happen in the ancient world at all. So, um, like we see, uh, like like Leah and Rachel, yeah. right? You know that story. Yeah. Still, Jacob had to go ask Daddy's permission, even though he had effectively had his way with Rachel in the field. He had to marry her. Okay. So as to avoid, he had to avoid. He married Leah and then Rachel, but he had to avoid shame for the family. To get dad's permission, the father, the family still had to agree, blah, 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 blah. Um, going back to your point about similarities, right. is this where it comes from, um, this historical perspective, the thought that the man should pay for the wedding, the man's family should pay for the wedding? Not always done nowadays, but through history. Through history, yes, done. exactly. Traditionally, it was the man's family who paid for the wedding. Not the brides. Now it's changed. Now it's changed. It's changed. Right? It's changed. Yeah, it's usually the woman's family pays. Right. He just pays for the rehearsal dinner and stuff like that. Right, 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 right. <laughs> We've made weddings into an exaggerated extreme function. Some people spend more money on the wedding than they do on getting ready to be married. Yeah, they don't stay married. That's right. I can tell you as a pastor, 
I always tell my folks, I said, spend less on the wedding than yeah. you do on the preparation financially to be married. Because mm-hmm. right. right. I, can, I can tell you, if I walk in and I see this huge, humongous wedding that I know costs $30,000, $40,000, they ain't going to stay married long. It's all for sure. Because usually it's covering up great deficit in the relationship. And don't go into debt for your wedding. That's crazy. That's crazy. And they still do it, right? But that would have not been allowed to happen in the ancient world. Okay, so back to the text. So Joseph acts with great integrity. Not only does he choose to divorce her quietly, he listens to the Lord Mm -hmm. despite what you know had to be a lot of tongue wagging in the community. When he hears directly from the Lord, and again, an angel showing up uh, exemplifies the presence of God, okay? Just like in the First Testament, you have angels showing up at various times to tell people things or to help people like Gideon or whatever, you know, people along the way. You have angels showing up. This was right in line with that. And so when an angel showed up in a dream to Joseph, then he uh, obeyed. And like his namesake, he was a dreamer. Joseph, the ancient Joseph, was a dreamer. God appeared to him in dreams, right? So does this Joseph. So we have two dreams, right, with Joseph. We have the dream of the angel, which tells him, go ahead and marry Mary because the child within is from the Holy Spirit. And then we have the dream of get ye out of here and get on to Egypt and hide this baby, right? So um, Joseph is a dreamer as well (laughs) as his namesake. But he listens to the Lord. So not only does he have integrity, he is obedient to the Lord quickly. He doesn't hem and haw. He doesn't question. He just does it. And then he is an example of sexual integrity. Even though he had the right to sleep with his wife once they were married, it says that they went ahead and got married. He chose not to until after the purification period after Jesus' birth, which would have been another six weeks after Jesus' birth. So not only did Jesus have a virgin conception, he had a virgin birth, literally. Joseph is a real example of restraint and integrity and love. He loved and respected Mary enough and respected and loved the Lord enough to allow what needed to happen happen so that Jesus' birth could not be disputed as one that is miraculous. So he didn't want to mess that up. Joseph had choice all along the way. Joseph was not driven to do this. He had to choose. He could have chosen to say, I'm sorry, I can't do this, and left the scene. And Jesus' birth would still have been miraculous. God would have brought somebody else, another man, to fill that role from the family. Just like... I firmly believe, because of the way God acts and his character, that Mary may not have been the only only person in the royal household, the only young woman, that God asked. Mary just happened to be the one that said yes. <laughs> People have choice all along the way. God does not compel anyone to do anything. He gives you the, he'll stack the deck. 
he'll fan out the cards and pull the ace out real far and go, take one. That, that one. But we can still choose to go, no, I'm going to take the two. And we see that. Solomon, like we talked about last week, is a good example of that. Solomon could have ended well, but he chose not to. He chose to give his heart and life to the pagan deities at the end of his life. Just cause you just cause you made one choice doesn't mean you continually don't continually have to keep saying yes to God. Mary continued to say yes despite the circumstances. She had to say yes every day. <laughs> right? Joseph had to continue to say yes through this process. So un- unbelievable restraint. So let's look at Mary's character. Um, I went to Catholic seminary for two years, and um, in a class on the book of Revelation, taught by one of a priest, um, Father Kelly, um, was teaching on the Virgin Mary in the book of Revelation. And so I asked him after class, because I didn't want to embarrass anybody, I said, so how did the Catholic practical theology, not what's in the canon, but what practical theology is, popular theology, is that people worship Mary. That is not Catholic doctrine, by the way. But it is what happens, unfortunately, and and the way Father Kelly explained it, which I agree and we see here, is that Mary is meant to be an example. Mary is an example, and any theology that raises Mary above an example is wrong. She is an example uh, of purity, an example of obedience, and an example of sacrifice. But she is not deity. That deification of Mary did not happen until much later, into the Middle Ages. Um, and it is a and it is against written Catholic doctrine. Um, Mary becomes associated with a variety of pagan deities as we go through history. But originally, that was not the doctrine. So <laughs> she was always meant only as an example. A high example, but nonetheless an example, right? Um, That I am following the example of the Virgin Mary in purity and obedience. So again, Mary exemplifies, because notice she doesn't gripe. She doesn't fall apart. She is secure in her understanding and knowledge that this child comes from God and that she is steadfast in her obedience and in her understanding of who God is. So clearly she has a pre-existing relationship with God prior to this happening. Again, there were lots of girls in the royal line of David. But Mary said yes, and she was the best qualified (laughs) to take this on. Um, you know, and, then, and and we'll get into the birth, actual, physically, next week. But what I want you to see is that what happened to Mary and Joseph didn't happen in a vacuum. That there was family and people to deal with. And it was messy. It wasn't cut and dry. There were lots of choices that had to be made along the way. And that's true for us today. We want to somehow think that once we receive Jesus, that life just goes along okay. 
And if something bad happens or something's wrong, then something something's out of whack. But the very story of Jesus' birth indicates that if messy does not indicate wrong, you have to know within yourself where you stand with the Lord. You have to know. Look, I know that I am in right standing with God. I hadn't done anything in this situation that's wrong. Therefore, I'm going to stand on that truth. Right? If your integrity is intact, anybody can say anything, and you may suffer for a period of time, but in the end, your integrity will win the day, as it did for Joseph and Mary. But you have to make sure that every day you're saying yes to the Lord so that when things do come your way, and they will, <laughs> if they haven't already, you will be able to say, no, uh-uh, that's not me. If you know me, you know that that's not me. And that I would never do that. This is Mary and Joseph. This is the example for us today. It's not impossible to live an integrous life. That doesn't mean you're perfect in every way. But it means that every day you get up and say yes to God. Yes to him and his ways. And ask forgiveness. If you mess up, ask forgiveness. Ask forgiveness from God and from the person you offended. Because until we have the integrity to go, hey, sister, you know, I really screwed up. I messed up. I am so sorry. It is, I, don't, I didn't mean to hurt you. Can we work this out? Um, you know, we're sisters in Christ, and, and I want to make this right. Can I do to make this right? And that's all your responsibility. If that person receives it, great. If they don't, you've done what you needed to do. Okay? You can't expect for them to go, well, you know, you know, if they're mad at you, that's their business. If they don't turn around and ask you, ask them to forgive, you know, you to forgive them, that's your that's their business, not yours. Don't expect them to ask for forgiveness from you, or vice versa. Okay, if they've done something wrong, let the Lord convict them. It's not your job to convict them of anything. What well, you did. I'm saying I'm sorry, but you need to say you're sorry, too. <laughs> that didn't work that way. <laughs> Why is that so hard for human beings? <laughs> because we always want to be right. It's pride. We don't want to look bad. But we want to be right. We wonder why America's in the States. Yes, sir. Right now, the United States is run by emotion and fear and anger, not reality. That's right. A little love would go a long way. Until the United States and indeed the world is run by truth and love rather than emotion, then there's not a lot of hope for change before Jesus comes. Now, the church is supposed to be in the business of love and truth. We should not be wrapped up in the emotional frenzy because we have a firm foundation. Like we talked about last week. You can have all your facts right and still be dead wrong. (laughs) Because truth 
sometimes complements the facts and sometimes it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But the foundation of loving Jesus Christ, loving my neighbor, even if they're that guy, many times there is a deficit spiritually and emotionally in a person that grabs on to even a person they don't like. That's exactly right. There's a, there's a disconnect. But as I said last night in service, I'm going to duck as I say this, <laughs> there is a tremendous difference between Americanity and Christianity. Yes, yes, yes. There is, there is. When you wrap the Bible in a flag, that's right. That's, that's no longer Christianity. No, no, it's That is straight up old school idolatry. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And that's where we found ourselves. We have an idolatrous nation that worships the ideology that is America without the substance and integrity thereof. To make America great again, quote unquote, I would dare say we need the church to be the church to make America great, period. Right. Right. Period. Yes. <laughs> For everybody. Yes. Because the reality is it wasn't founded on anything particularly wholesome. No, no. There was a lot of disparity. <laughs> Even when it was founded, right? So to heal America means that it has to get on the right footing to begin with. And that's the church's that's the church's job is to bring the kingdom. Right. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so it has to begin in the church. We can't fix America from the top down. No, no. It's got to be from the, from the foundation, which comes through its faith. Yes. The houses of faith have to work together to bring about justice as God talks about justice. Now, fortunately... Many of you know I work in the interfaith community. There's a lot of similarity in what we view as the right thing between Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. The basic foundations of what God expects in society are the same. So if we work together, <laughs> I think we could truly bring about a, a level of revival and integrity not only in the United States, but around the world. But we have to be willing to view the other as our neighbor. Yes. The other as our neighbor. I can be Jesus and then the questions will come. Yes. Why did you not respond this way? Why did you choose not to retaliate? Why did you choose to deal with your finances this way? Why did you choose not to talk about so-and-so? Then you have the opportunity to share your faith. You say, because of what Jesus has done in my life, I used to be this way, but now I'm yeah. this way. Yeah. Because of the work and power of the Holy Spirit in my life. So Mary and Joseph were these examples like that in their culture. These were God-fearing people they lived among. These are people who, who loved God. But they were a cut above, mm-hmm. even above that, in their example of integrity. So that calls us, as the church, to be a cut above. We should not do business like everybody else. Right, right, right. We should not treat other people, even if they are the nastiest people ever, 
the way they deserve to be treated. Right. Why? Because God didn't treat us the way we deserve to be treated. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, he, he talks about it in Exodus. Yes, yes, right. A call for justice about, you know, yeah. and I look at America and I'm like, wow, if we would just do that, right. we would be so much better. So justice comes in two forms. And we'll end on this. The first, first Testament talks about two forms of justice, right? One is sadaka. That means ready justice. That means helping out somebody right now. Somebody needs clothes, somebody needs shelter, somebody needs $20 to get some food, somebody needs a gas card. That's sadaka. You'll find people defining it as charity. That's too shallow a definition because what it actually is talking about in the First Testament is a level of justice. Economic, personal, societal justice at the micro level. Like, if I see somebody on the street corner and I want, I'm led by the Lord to give them something, that's sadaka. I'm helping out somebody right now. My next door neighbor runs next door, needs a cup of sugar, that's sadaka. Somebody's house burned down and we give them everything they need to set up house the next day, that's sadaka. The other form of justice is talked about in the first text, testament is mishpat. Mishpat, M-I-S-H-P-A-T. Mishpat. That is societal and systemic justice. Changing the system so that sadaka happens. Changing the system so that people's needs are met in an integrous way. Thank you for joining us in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Come back next week to hear more about the birth of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen. Amen.